Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy!
Hey, good morning, fellas. Welcome to For Dads Only. Hey, I just want to see who's in the room. How many of you have one or one kid? All right. Raise your hand if you have two kids. Um, and this is, you know, obviously this is raise your hand. Kids that you're aware of. Sorry, that's bad. That's bad. How many have three kids? All right. Man, four? Five. More than five. How many, how many we got? Six. Six. Wow. Um, we might hand you the mic before this thing's over and pray for you. That's awesome. Well, guys, it does, whether you're, how many of you have kids living in the home? Like they're still, still tucking them in? Yeah. How many of you have grandkids? Oh, I love that. I love seeing you guys here. Still, still wanting to learn. Uh, need to learn. Well, hey, listen, guys, wherever you're at on this dad spectrum, we are thrilled that you're here and it is not in vain. Um, this is not mic drop teaching that, man, hope, hope you enjoy that. This is equipping, um, which is what men's ministry is. Ephesians 4 talks about equipping, um, equipping. And so we focus on equipping each other, and we all need it. I know I need encouragement and accountability as a dad. Because um, on most days, I feel way in over my head. On my best day, I feel in over my head. Um, but I was just reflecting this week on, I've got um, two daughters and a, and a boy. My oldest daughter, Ella, is 16. She's getting ready to be a junior in high school. My middle daughter is Kinsley, 13. She's getting ready to be in eighth grade. And my son, Grayson, is nine and getting ready to be in fourth grade. And I was just reflecting on, on just some of the, I mean, some of the greatest joys of my life would include being a dad. Some of the hardest times so far in my life would include being a dad. Some of the most humbling times definitely include being a dad. I mean, it's, it's all spectrums on the extreme, extreme deal, and I can share that because I know if you're a dad, it's true of you too. Um, and each stage of parenting, I've learned it, some parts get easier, but simultaneously some parts get harder. Um, so it's not like, oh, finally we've got to the easy stage of parenting. But I can tell you this, if your kids are out of the house, if you have grandkids, you are still very much needed as your kid's dad, whatever age they're at. Um, and so remember that as, as we're getting here. This is a no guilt, no shame zone, or this is a shame-free, guilt-free zone. So the goal of these next four weeks is not for, for you to leave and allow the enemy to beat you up and make you think, man, I blew it, it's too late for me. If I'd only known this you know, five years ago or two decades ago. Now, we're, wherever you're at, God wants us um, to learn a new tool, um, a new equipping deal, or be reminded and to engage in that. All right, so let's focus on progress, no, not perfection. None of us are perfect dads, but really excited for what God has in store. There's been a lot of work that's gone behind the scenes. Um, Ken Eidelman and Kent Evans, who runs Manhood Journey, uh, we've spent a lot of time behind the scenes developing this. This isn't just, hey, what are what are some things we could talk about? Really, really prayerfully went through, and so we're excited. But I do want to be um, clear. This is an ongoing, intentional conversation. This is not a four weeks check, awesome dad alert now, right? I mean, this is, we are going to gather in, in these specific type of um, 
of folks is, and we're going to keep for dads only uh, a name, but when you hear that moving forward, don't think, oh yeah, I already did that once. It's going to be, we're just going to keep putting new tools in the toolbox, um, not to create busyness, but just because there's a lot to being a dad. And so I was, we, I was just backstage and we were talking about, man, what, what are words think that most naturally guys, dads think of when they think of, when we think of our role as a dad? And I think there's two uh, that probably surface more than others. And one is uh, to provide, right? To provide. That's, a, that's important. Don't want to discount that. But then also to protect, um, which is also important. But you know what? We're not here to, to help each other become better dads. That would be admirable, but that would fall way short. Instead, we are here focusing on equipping all of us to be disciple makers of our kids. Um, when you have one, seven, more than that, um, that is what God is calling us to, to, to be our non-negotiable. You know, And so we, we talk about this man challenge and the DDG and getting equipped our different men's environments that it's like, man, if you're... If you're killing it and if you're bearing much fruit with other dudes but you're missing the mark at home, that makes us a poser. And so uh, we want to equip all of us so that we're, we're not going into our homes as posers. But instead we're going in with these Psalm 78, 72. It talks about David uh, shepherding with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. Well, skillful hands are developed. Um, it's not a magic prayer we pray. It's we're developed. And so, so grateful you guys carved out this morning to get up earlier than uh, maybe you prefer, or at least here earlier than you prefer. I can promise you it's not in vain. And um, we've been praying for you guys to get here. So really excited about that. A um, couple things before I turn it over to Ken. One is uh, we are in the process of getting ready for our next men's season, which we kick off in August. Man Challenge is one of those. DDG, Disciple Development Group, and Getting Equipped. If you have interest um, to know more about what it would mean for you to dive in as a Man Challenge table leader or co-leader or, or any, any men's environment for that matter, will you, will you let myself or anybody from our men's team, Andy Potter, um, Chris Morgan, we would love to have a conversation because now is when these conversations need to be happening um, as, we're, as we're moving in that process. Um, that's one thing. We are recording these. Um, we've had some technical difficulties, so uh, we've had to call an audible, but we are recording these. So if you want to, man, you're like, man, I'd like to listen to that again, or I missed something, you can email bbmens at secc.org, and you know, we're not trying to keep these a secret. These are not, if you're, if you're not here in person, you missed it, um, and, if, and we encourage you, man, pass these along um, to any dad you know. And so we're excited about that. This uh, next four weeks is a little different than our, our spiritual gifts deal. As you can see, we're not set up in round tables. Um, so we're not set up to have intentionally to have a table discussion time. But I do want to encourage you, man, if you came with somebody, if you're sitting next to somebody, if, if something's said that you want to unpack together, man, we encourage you to do that. Don't, don't confuse the theater-style seating as you're not allowed to talk to anybody and, and unpack this together. Um, our men's staff and um, Ken and Kent are going to be available up front here as soon as Ken dismisses us. If you want to be prayed with, if you want us to pray with you, pray for you, um, or even just to talk about something that's, that's been shared this morning. And just make yourself, uh, make your way up here and, and we'll make ourselves available to you um, to, to, to be with you. So thank you. Let me pray. We'll turn it over. God, thank you for, for these dads, these men in this room who um, we all came in here with, from different places, 
uh, different stages of fatherhood, um, and just different ages of our kids and even grandkids. But Lord, I pray whatever a guy walked in here with, whether he's feeling defeated, uh, whether he's feeling encouraged, Lord, that you would remind every dad in here that you are for them, not against them. Lord, I pray that you would use these next four weeks of equipping to increase confidence and competence um, for every dad in here to disciple their kid, their kids um, in ways that brings maximum glory to you. So show us how to be faithful conduit as disciple makers, and we give you the praise for that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome to the stage for Dads Only, Ken Eidelman. Thank you, Ronnie. Good morning, guys. Good to greet you this morning. We are uh, told of uh, an exciting four weeks, I think. And uh, somebody left their cell phone here, and they'll be crippled without it. So uh, maybe I just want to leave that here before. What do you say, Andy? Oh, that's it. Well, let me do that. Uh, today's brand new four-part series that we're calling for Dads Only. We're going to have a very tight focus on the priority and the practice of growing your kids and your grandkids God's way. Now, my part of it is the first two weeks, and I'm going to talk to you about this topic, the most important disciples you will ever make. And, of course, that is the children in your own household as a dad. And we're focusing on this because of the biblical mandate that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. If you have your booklets, you'll see that scripture printed on a black background sheet. We have several of them loose out on the tables in the foyer. You might want to take one home, put it under the glass on your desktop, or in a place where you can see it, and just be reminded of these words that are uh, taken from the common English Bible. You'll recognize it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and following. Israel... Listen, our God is the Lord, the only Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being, and all your strength. These words that I am commanding you today must always be on your minds. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are sitting around the house, and when you are out and about, when you are lying down, and when you are getting up. Do you see the placement of this commission to all fathers of godly households? Here you have what Jesus would later refer to as the first and greatest commandment. It's right there to love the Lord your God with all your being, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then immediately following, have you ever noticed this? Immediately following the first and greatest commandment, the command to reproduce your love for the Lord and your loyalty to the Lord in your children, the next generation. I want you to notice the placement of the first and greatest commandment and the commission, particularly to fathers, to reproduce their faith in the next generation. Now, there are some salient points right off the bat from this text. Let me just give you three. One of them is the assertion that the best families are led by parents who truly, underlying truly, love God. With all your heart, with all your being, 
and with all your strength. The best families are led by parents who truly love God. Secondly, the best families are led by parents from whose minds the truth of God and the things of God are never far. It says, His words must always be on your mind. Does that describe your thought life in the course of a day? At home, when you're with your family. The third thing I see in this is that the best families are led by parents that are intentional and creative and strategic about teaching and communicating to their children. It says to recite God's Word. Talk about it when you're sitting down. Talk about it when you're out and about. Talk about it when you're lying down at night, when you're getting up in the morning. Someone has said the Christian faith is one generation from extinction. That's a startling but true statement. And are you aware of what's going on out there? We are presently losing ground, brothers. The percentage of those who acknowledge the existence of God, but do not live out any expression of faith in Him. They're unconnected to church life. This has grown dramatically in recent years. It's now one-fourth of the population. One-fourth of the population of our nation, believers in God, without any active expression of their faith. And that puts this particular group in second place as the largest, if you want to call it, denomination in the United States after evangelical Protestants. We are the largest number, but the second largest number is believers who don't live out their faith in any kind of meaningful expression. The majority of these are what we call millennials. Verses, they're uh, ages 18 to 33. And this growing trend of people who are believers without an expression of active faith means that parents are not discipling their own children during their most formative years. Listen, we aren't losing our children between the ages of 18 and 33. We're failing to disciple them between birth and age 18. And it's because we're raising them to value the wrong things. From the website, beforeitsnews.com, we have a survey list of the top ten things parents today want for their children. Here they are. Number one, to be, to be happy. To be happy. Um, I just read a little piece about a father-son having a talk. The boy asks his father, Dad, can I buy a handgun and carry it to school? And the father says, no, you're five years old. He said, well, Dad, can, uh, can I start smoking cigars? No, you're five years old. Well, Dad, can I start drinking beer? No, you're five years old. Well, Dad, can I start taking... Uh, gender transformative drugs whatever makes you happy son whatever makes you happy that's the number one answer to be happy secondly to be self-reliant we don't want them living in our back bedroom indefinitely uh, to be responsible was number three number four to be to be successful 
Five, to be your parents' best friend. Sounds a little self-serving. Six, to take care of your parents in the future. Sounds like the guy's got a plan there. Number seven, to make their parents proud. Number eight, to meet good people. Number nine, to have good manners. Number ten, to be a good human being. That's the top ten, and I submit to you those values are not worthy. They aren't. What does this list do for you? I'll tell you, it doesn't do much for me. I want my children to be content and to be at peace more than just to be happy. I want them to be dependent on God more than self-reliant. I want them to be moral more than just responsible. I want them to be truthful more than just successful. I want them to be admirable more than just likable. I want them to take care of their nuclear family more than taking care of me. I want them to experience God's approval more than my approval. I want to see Christ formed in them more than just having good friends around them. I want them to have godly character more than just good manners. I want them to be good Christ followers more than just being good human beings. So if we want the deep things of God and the teachings of Jesus to be the rock on which our children build their lives and their futures, how do we get that job done? Well, let me tell you how it's not done. It's not done by merely getting them to church once or twice a week. Now, I know we all live in an outsourcing culture, after all. You got a leak, you call a plumber. You have a pain, you go see a specialist. If you have an automobile breakdown, you call a mechanic. If your son or daughter is behind in school, you employ a tutor. So logic says, if you want to have Christ formed in your kids, send them to church. And that's vitally important. And it is the way that some are successfully discipled. But in reality, the church is here to supplement and to complement what you are doing as you disciple your sons and daughters. We cannot take your place. Why? Well, simply because of a combination of the law of exposure and simple math. They have 168 hours each week for which to account. You take away 56 hours for sleep, that leaves 112 hours. Take away another 40 hours for school, that leaves 72 hours. Now, if they have two hours a week in church, that means that there are potentially 70 hours of discretionary time. And much of this time is spent at home. And I'm telling you, home is where discipleship should happen. As you spiritually engage, as you model, as you teach, as you counsel, as you pray, impressing on your children what is right and what is true and what matters most. Okay, so let's get a little more biblical and practical here. Let's leave the why of discipling our children and turn our attention to the when and the where and the how. And I want to use Jesus as our example because clearly there is no one who is a better model of making disciples. When did he do it? Well, he did it, he did it perpetually. He did it consistently. Daily doing life with them in relaxed, informal settings. Where did he do it? Well, he did it at dinner tables. We see that a lot. And virtually everywhere, anywhere he could. And how did he do it? How did he make disciples? I think four methods. First, he communicated love 
and acceptance. Secondly, he communicated patience and understanding. Thirdly, he invested time and attention. And finally, there was discipline and instruction. Well, we won't have time to cover all four of those areas, but we're going to take the first and last. Today we're going to talk about love and acceptance, opening the door for you to successfully disciple your own children. And then we'll wind up next week with discipline and instruction. Two sides of the same coin. Love and discipline. Discipline and instruction. You see, Jesus often used the dinner table as a tool to make disciples, and you can too. At your house... You can change the chemistry of the dinner table and make it a feel-good place, a natural place, an unforced, relaxed, informal place to daily disciple your children for the years from birth through age 18. Now, if you're more into setting the food out on the counter and grazing in front of the TV at mealtimes, you're not going to be able to pull this off. If you're done eating in six or seven minutes without conversation, then everybody is quickly back to their iPhones and their iPads and their video games and their texting and their tweeting. I'm afraid that won't work either. But if you're willing to establish a new normal around your house and protect sometimes when there's no TV on, there are no phone calls accepted, no emails sent, no text messages received, No interruptions, just focused attention and interaction with the most special people in your life. The people who will hopefully be in your life until the day you or they die. So today I want you to see that you can actually use the dinner table as a place to communicate the love and acceptance so foundational to discipling. I want to take you to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 and following. Here's how it went down. Jesus was invited to eat in the home of a Pharisee when all of a sudden, right in the middle of the serving of the meal, a woman with a bad reputation barged in and immediately went over to Jesus. He was easy to recognize because of his white robe and blue sash, of course. She positioned herself at his feet. And she began to weep, and her tears wet his feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. And the host Pharisee was indignant about the woman crashing his dinner party. So he, in a side conversation, no doubt, uh, called Jesus out on it because he did not rebuke her. Well, Jesus read him like a book and called him out for his lack of hospitality, his arrogance, and his spiritual indifference. And he went further. In a very articulate and public way, Jesus commended the woman for her values. And in the process, he communicated to her his love and acceptance. Look at it in Luke 7, 44. Then Jesus turned toward the woman. I find it interesting that Jesus turned toward the woman, but he's addressing Simon, the Pharisee. He turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. 
You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss of greeting, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Folks, I believe that Jesus made a disciple out of that woman that day. I see the very same spirit in Mark chapter 10, verse 13 and following. We read Mark's account of Jesus with the children. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he took the children in his arms and he blessed them. And my guess is he made some more disciples there. The parents of those children and the children themselves. The parents of these children and the children themselves were impacted. Because Jesus was a master at communicating love and personal acceptance. And in God's plan... Fathers are the primary physical extension of the love and acceptance of Jesus. They'll learn about His love and acceptance through your love and acceptance. Today I want to boil it down to an acrostic. A-W-E. Affection, warmth, encouragement. I think this captures how dads can lay this cornerstone of acceptance and love that's so foundational to making disciples of your own children. Let's look at it. First of all, A-W-E. Let's look at the A, affection. Now, being able to say the words, I love you, that's extremely important. We've made some progress in the last 50, 100 years. Dads didn't used to say that to their wives. They didn't used to say that to their kids. It wasn't considered manly. It wasn't considered masculine. We've gotten past that. We're doing good on that. But we're talking here, when we're talking about affection, we're talking specifically about appropriate physical touch here. Jesus put His hands on the little children. He touched them as an expression of affection and blessing. And we should take note. Our children need to know they're valued and cherished. And when they're very young, it is best communicated physically. If they're held and rocked, and hugged, and kissed, and cuddled, and wrestled with during their early years, it matters. They'll be more secure. They'll be more confident. They'll be more personable. They will have a better self-image. Now, I know this is more natural in some families than it is in others, but regardless of how you're wired and how you were raised, You must recognize the importance of physical affection from parents. Studies confirm that in homes where affection is a constant, the children are much less likely to be sexually promiscuous down the line. 
one of the classic studies in the field of raising healthy kids was done in 1951. It was discovered by Harvard researchers over 50 years later in 2005. And so they decided to follow up on that 1951 study, which was comprised of interviews with mothers of their kindergarten students. So the children in the study had by then become parents or grandparents themselves. And as the researchers located the families and interviewed them and recorded their data, they discovered a remarkable fact. The happiest respondents, those who had stable families, successful careers, and possessed a zest for living, shared one important characteristic. Their parents had been affectionate, generous with hugs, kisses, playtime. The study revealed that one of the most important indicators of future happiness is not a high-quality education. It is not an upscale, state-of-the-art home. It's not all the toys, but physical closeness, physical closeness to parents. Money, major illnesses or injuries, frequent relocations had less bearing on the respondent's happiness than the power of genuine affection. Now I'm convinced today that in our over-sexualized culture, some parents feel inhibited in showing physical affection to their children. And I say it's to the kids' detriment. I remember years ago, Kyle was 12 years old, we parked in a parking spot at the North Park Mall. We walked into the North Park Mall, and as I was prone to do, I had my arm on my son's shoulder as we walked along. We were talking about something. We got inside the mall. A young junior high group of uh, girls, three or four girls, were walking behind us, I noticed. And one of them sheepishly came up and asked, Are you two homosexuals? <laughs> well, uh, my arm came off his shoulder, and, uh, and Kyle moved to the other side of the, to the aisle. That's where we are today. You show physical affection to your children. It's considered by some to be suspect considered to be appropriate. And I think at age 12, it did kind of trigger a difference in the way uh, we related to each other physically. And he's a man now, and I, uh, I hug him a lot. Uh, I, don't, I don't kiss him in, uh, like I did when he was a little boy. I save that for the daughter's cheeks. But I'm telling you guys, we have got to flip the script on physical affection for our children. And we need to get to be lovers uh, of our children at home. Lovers in the sense it's demonstrable. We're changing the culture of our family when we're at ease with physical affection. And by the way, at the Pharisee's home, Jesus did not pull back or recoil when the woman touched his feet. He received it. He accepted her physical expression of devotion. So I'm, I'm just telling you, rubbing heads, patting backs, tickling chins, pinching cheeks, 
hugs, holding hands for prayer at the dinner table. It's all good. And it will communicate love and acceptance. Get past yourself on this one, guys, particularly with your young children. Secondly, not just affection, but also warmth. Now, we, we all know that no home is without some conflict. But whatever you have to do to lower the stress levels will be worth it. To lower the stress levels in your household may mean, it may mean you have to choose some activities and have fewer activities more carefully chosen. It may mean less travel. Because getting ready to go on trips and coming home and unpacking after trips, you know, if you do that a lot, uh, that's, that's tough to maintain warmth in those moments. Lighter schedules, yes. Think about your family for just a moment. Think about how members treat each other. And if there's negative, critical, emotionally charged atmosphere with lots of drama, something should be done. You do not want to have a perpetually toxic climate in your home. So, is a positive attitude and outlook the norm in your family? Or is there fighting, bickering, criticism? Are voices typically raised? Is there tension in the home? Love and acceptance are short-circuited by anger, raised voices, sarcasm, unpleasantness. Home is God's place to regenerate and renew us, us, as well as our wives and our children on a daily basis. We should look forward at the end of the day to going home. After we've been in school or at the office or at a job. And how we say good morning and how we say good night matters. And goes a long way toward providing warmth in the home. I remember uh, that I would try hard to make the mornings joyful and the evenings peaceful. To begin the day with joy, to end the day with peace. So typically I would wake the kids up with, with uh, music. Sometimes it was recorded music that I turned up in the house so they could hear it when they wake up. And sometimes I would sing to them. And uh, so I would, I would say, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. I will rejoice. I will rejoice and be glad in it. Now, that works when they're little. They get to be about 10, 11, 12. You've got to shift to some of that good recorded Christian music that they love. But opening the day with, with joy is important. Going to bed at night with peace. Turning off the NFL game. Uh, or pushing pause. Let's do it that way. And going back to their bedrooms to have opportunities for spiritual counsel, good conversations, opportunity to maybe read to them from a book like James Dobson's book, Life on the Edge, or uh, Patrick Morley's book, Young Man in the Mirror, will lead you into conversations that you wouldn't ordinarily have. And at the end of the day, when things quiet down, is a great opportunity to invest spiritual counsel. And to pray over your kids. Let your kids hear you pray for them. And that's high impact with them. So waking up with joy, going to bed with peace at night. In our text, uh, Jesus pointed out the deficiencies in the Pharisees' home atmosphere. He said, you didn't give me any water for my feet. You didn't give me a greeting. You didn't put oil on my head. In other words, 
you took me, your guest, for granted, and you treated me impersonally. But the sinful woman welcomed me warmly by wetting my feet with her tears, kissing and perfuming them. So if your family has become impersonal, listen, taking each other for granted, not treating each other as special, you may not be able to always control them, but you can control yourself. So let the warmth begin with you and move outward. That is what Jesus did with the little children. And He was a child magnet. So, be Jesus to your children. Let His warmth radiate from you. And it's especially effective at times like the dinner table. Charles Schwab was right when he said, I have yet to find the man, however exalted his station in life, who did not do better work and put forth greater effort under a spirit of warm approval than under a spirit of cold criticism. So true. At the same time, sometimes a little tension in the home can actually be constructive. Kids need to see conflict resolution. They need to experience what it's like to make up. Sometimes warmth in the home is experienced by repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. Affection, warmth. You want to disciple your sons and daughters. We're talking here about practical tools to communicate love and acceptance, which is the foundation of discipling your children. Affection, warmth, encouragement. At the dinner table in the Pharisee's house, the sinful woman received great encouragement. Jesus affirmed her publicly. That had to be so uplifting to her in her brokenness. My guess is this woman lived every day without any kind of affirmation. The dinner table in your home is a prime location for encouragement to happen. We used to play the high-low game. Uh, we would say, high-low, high-low, how did your day go, Carissa? And then she would share her high and her low from the day. And then she would sing, high-low, high-low, how did your day go, Camille, her little sister? And then Camille had to share her high and her low. We had fun with it. It led us into good conversations. And uh, it just created the kind of atmosphere of encouragement that was needful. Sometimes kids need to get something off their chest. They need to tell you about the experience they had being bullied. Or the way they were uh, rudely uh, treated by a teacher. Or uh, whatever it, it is. Sometimes the low uh, needs to be addressed. Sometimes the high needs to be addressed. So there it is. It's a good way to use the dinner table to draw them out, get them talking. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So getting them to talk at the dinner table. They'll be encouraged and, and listen. They will learn to encourage. Now I remember when, uh, when Kyle was young, he got his growth early. I mean, he was 
I remember when he was sent home from school in the seventh grade to shave so he could go back to, to class. Uh, you guys growth early and he was uh, uh, tall and um, looked much older than he, than he actually was. And his coordination had not quite uh, caught up. He was an accident looking for a place to happen during those years when he was all arms and legs. Well, occasionally he would spill his drink at the dinner table and we'd have to interrupt dinner to clean it up. And it really bothered him when he would do that. It really bothered him that he was a little clumsy. One night at dinner, he reached for something on the table, tipped over his glass, spilled his drink yet again. And I noticed on his face an expression of regret and defeat. So you know what I did? I tipped over my glass and spilled it too. And all of us had a really good laugh. Except for Mrs. Idaho, as I recall. <laughs> I think that impulsive act on my part, that impulsive act on my part served to encourage my son. He knew that I did not want him to be discouraged. Well, the dinner table is also a great place to share encouragement from the Bible, to talk about family concerns, to plan family events together. It's a great place to memorize Scripture, to discuss a problem, to share prayer needs from the extended family, from friends, and from the church. And speaking of the church, let the conversation at your table about anything related to the church be only uplifting and encouraging. I can tell you why we have three children who have all embraced Christian service, Christian servant leadership. It's because of the way we talked about the church at the, at the dinner table. Folks, our kids are in a battle almost every day. Do you remember what it was like growing up, the peer pressure, remember that? The cutting comments, the negative attitudes, the comparison game. Our kids are battling bullies and insecurity about their appearance, insecurity about their schoolwork. Our children need their home to be a refuge where they can retreat, where, where they can drop their anxiety and their insecurity at the door and be themselves. Your home ought to be the one place where your kids feel unconditionally, truly affirmed. Physical affection, an atmosphere of warmth, consistent encouragement will help them to know they're loved and accepted and love and acceptance will become the cornerstone of the foundation for them to become the most important disciples you will ever make. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says, and it's more of a prediction than a promise. Sometimes it's read as a promise. It's a prediction. It's not a promise because there's a little thing called free will in the heads and hearts of your kids. And sometimes their poor choice of friendships and their poor decisions about activities and priorities lead them down a, a deviant path. But Proverbs 22, 6 says, start children off in the way they should go. And even when they're old, they will not turn from it. It will always be in their heads. It will always be in their hearts. And that's our commitment, isn't it? To make sure 
that birth to age 18 becomes a great start to them becoming a lifelong follower of Jesus. And so take these tools, affection, warmth, encouragement, and let those propel you into a new chemistry in your home, a new culture in your home. It'll endear you to your wife, I promise you. And it will lay a cornerstone in the lives of your children you can build on for years to come. And so we fulfill the mandate that we have in Scripture as that for us to be priests in our own household. So what does a priest do? Two things, only two things. A priest talks to God about people. And a priest talks to people about God. Be a priest in every context, but particularly be a priest in your own household. Talk to God about your family. Prayer. Talk to your family about God. Teach them. Bless them. Disciple them. I'm going to pray. Then we're going to be dismissed. But there'll be several of us up front here. And if you want to have conversation, unhurried conversation with me, I don't have a thing going on this morning. I don't have anything better to do than engage with you personally, if that would be helpful to you. Um, and there'll be others up here with me who are wired the same way, likewise committed. And so uh, we'll be here as long as uh, we need to be. So if you want to come up for prayer or encouragement from us, that's why we're here this morning. Pray with me. Father God, I, I thank you for the, the honor, the, the humbling privilege to be able to share with these men about their most important role in life. Lord, it, it doesn't matter whether we ever reach six-figure income or have a corner office or drive a Tesla or take exotic vacations. All the rest, all that stuff is destined for extinction. It's all going to burn up and go away. But one thing that will endure into the greater life is when we successfully see Jesus formed in our children. We've contributed our DNA, but that's not enough. We've got to reproduce our love for you and your son and the church in them. And that's the most important thing we can do to ensure that they have a life that is gratifying and energizing and fulfilling. So help us, Lord. We, we are not adequate for it, but you can empower us to do it, and we commit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brothers.
Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.